I've always been someone who likes to do things differently. Like I love seeing white space and being like, well, what, wait, why can't we do that? Like I'm very anti-status quo in everything I do. Hey guys, welcome to Active Ingredient, the podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Wheel, and I'll be taking a deep dive into why people do what they do and what it is that drives them. I believe every single person has an active ingredient to them, aka a purpose, and all we have to do is uncover what that is and activate it. I'm looking at people across the board with fancy titles like editors and chiefs, founders and CEOs, to under-the-radar activists who are changing the world one person at a time. I want to get to the bottom of how they first discovered their passion, how they channel their talent consistently, and ultimately how their active ingredient is making the world a better place. Today's episode is with fashionista, marketing powerhouse, author, and now podcast host, Aliza Licht. Aliza's career exploded while she was the SVP of global communications at Donna Karen International, where she created and built the voice of the award-winning social personality, DKNY PR Girl which was kept anonymous for years before revealing that she was the sassy voice behind the tweets. She organically built a multi-platform community of over 1.5 million followers for DKNY and was one of, if not the first marketers to humanize a brand and give it an honest and trusted voice. Thanks to the attention the Twitter account received, she landed a book deal and authored the best-selling book, Leave Your Mark, that has been translated into Spanish, Chinese, and Russian and is ranked number five in Book Authority's best career development books of all time. And let me just say that I read Leave Your Mark right out of college, and it was the first ever career advice book that I ever read, and she was really one of my first career role models, so this is a very full circle moment for me to have her on Active Ingredient, and I honestly just, I can't really believe it. But anyway, Leave Your Mark continues to live on and is now the title of her recently launched podcast, Leave Your Mark the Podcast, where she brews fresh career advice weekly with some of her most successful and dynamic friends. And I could not recommend the episode with Peter Shankman more. He is a very big voice in the PR world, but I think the most interesting thing about the episode, which is kind of a spoiler alert, is that in order for him to get massive inspiration, he actually jumps out of a plane and lands and finds his laptop and then just word vomits. And I think that that's just like the coolest thing I've ever heard. But anyway, her podcast is amazing. Aliza's received many accolades, but to name a few, she's been featured on the cover of the New York Times style section in the article, Who Will Be America's Next Top Mentor? She is a TEDx speaker, a five-time Fashion 2.0 award winner, and has been named one of Time's six women who rule the fashion world and New York Daily News list of top 50 most powerful women in New York. On this episode, we talk about her incredible career journey from editorial to public relations to authoring a book, consulting, and now launching a podcast. We talk about how public relations has drastically changed with the rise of social media and the decline of print, how podcasts are the new media real estate to pay attention to, We talk about the power and importance of humanizing a brand. And of course, we get into the power of connection and creating meaningful relationships. So with that, let's get into today's episode with Aliza Licht. So after a little turbulent morning... I am here with Aliza Licht. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh my God. It's a pleasure. And I love how we connected and we sort of were working together on other stuff. And then this happened really organically. I know. Well, I always start off asking what you were like as a kid, which is basically where you're talking about your daughter. She's literally my favorite person on Instagram. So I want to hear from you on your perspective, what you remember of yourself as a kid. And then also like, do you see that translated in your daughter? Okay. So, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Yeah. I, as a kid... I I have to say I was very um, Tracy Flick in a lot of ways. Um, not in, you know, I don't even remember the movie so well to say, but mm-hmm. I think she was a little manipulative. I wasn't. <laughs> um, but I was very like, I'm going to do everything perfectly. My room's going to be perfect. My homework's going to get done. Like I was a goody two-shoes beyond. Like, Are you the first child? I'm the first child. Okay. But also my my parents didn't even have to tell me to do that. You know, it was just sort of innate and um, always really creative, you know, making clothes for Barbie. The minute I got a sewing machine at like age three or four, I was literally sewing clothes for Barbie. Oh, my God. Yes. yes. You should tell Barbie and see if you can work with her. (laughs) By the way, I will add my favorite look that I ever did, which I thought was really creative because it was – remember, it's like the 80s. Yeah. 
um, I pushed cotton balls up her arms to make puff sleeves. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. You're so ahead of your time. I know, right? You're like a little prodigy. I mean, I kind of wish I could put a cotton ball up my arm right now and have a puff You kind of, I need to take a picture because you kind of do have some sort of cotton ball situation happening right now and it looks really good. Yeah. So I would say Sabrina is not, she takes after me in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways she takes after my husband. So she is the person who... Now I need to meet your husband because that girl is like, I swear to God, my favorite person on Instagram. Oh my God, that's so funny. (laughs) Well, I don't, you know, listen, my husband is really funny. I would say as far as like a work ethic perspective, we need to like work on that a little bit. (laughs) Um, My son is definitely me as far as that's concerned, but I don't know. I was always, listen, second grade, I created a homework club for my friends where I was the teacher and I assigned them homework and then would grade it and give them gold star stickers. I mean, you're type A. Super type A, but also always a mentor actually. Really? Yeah. Okay. So I want to get into what you thought you wanted to be. Okay. So I grew up in the eighties, like Mm -hmm. I said, um, high school, my entire room was wallpapered and fashion editorial. Like entire. Like was I was your mom like this or like how how did you get exposed to it? In the my beginning? mom was always into fashion. Okay. Um she has great style. And I I think I actually submitted my room to Seventeen magazine. You know, they used to cover wallpapered rooms back then. Um, you know how to pitch from the womb. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, but I didn't get accepted. Um, but fashion wasn't a job. I, I didn't know. You know, I knew that there were these gorgeous pictures that I loved mm-hmm. to make my room look cool, but I didn't think about it from the perspective of like, what do those people do? So I I was very good in science. I was very artistic. And I thought, well, if I combine those two things, then maybe I can be a plastic surgeon. Mm. So did I did not expect that. Yeah. So I interned for a plastic surgeon for a couple of summers um, during high school. And then when I went to college, I actually started as a nutrition major. And then I switched to neurobiology and physiology because I had a boyfriend who was a year ahead of me. And I thought that would be really helpful. And then we broke up. So needless to say, I graduated with that degree, but then I switched gears late in the game and decided I don't want to do this um, based on a host of reasons, including I didn't want to be in a hospital every day. And also my grandmother was living with us for 13 years and she was really on her decline. And I just felt like this is not, I'm like a super upbeat person. Like I want to be happy every day. I love my clothes. I don't want to wear scrubs. And I was like, I want to work in fashion. I feel that. I was a psychology major and I was like, if every single day, I'm also like an empath so I can absorb people's energies. I'm like, I can't do that. I need to do some, and then PR. Yeah. Perfect. (laughs) Cool. Perfect. So yeah. So So then you landed on that. What were your first jobs? And, and I guess at that time, like, I don't know that there were a lot of role models in like a girl boss kind of position. Um, Who were you looking up to at that time? And like, how did you first navigate those first jobs? So first of all, I would say the fashion bug came not just from my room, but also I had bought Models Manual by Arthur Elgort. Um, That was my like cool coffee table book in college. And I really looked at that book all the time. And That is what sort of gave me the idea like, wow, now I know what mastheads are because I'm older, Mm -hmm. wiser, (laughs) and um, I want to work in a magazine. So my first sort of job, of course, unpaid, was an internship at Harper's Bazaar in the accessories department. And I'm forever grateful to Richard Sinnott, who's at Michael Kors, because he hired me with a neurobiology and physiology major. What was your pitch? I need to hear it. My pitch was really simple cover letter that I think I literally wrote like on a typewriter. Um, <laughs> no way, because I'm <laughs> like that old. Um, oh I, I said that you know I've I've always been a fan that their pages have been on my walls since I'm a little girl. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was a job until now, and I set out on a path to become a doctor that I no longer want to pursue. And I hope that they'll give me the opportunity to pivot and correct my mistake. And so really honest, actually. And Before transparency was a trend. Right. (laughs) Um, I've always been like that. But, you know, they gave me that chance. And then he was the one who got me my job at Mary Claire and accessories six months later. And then then from there. My bosses, I've been really lucky. Yeah. 
I've been really lucky. I mean, Richard, not only Richard, but there were a host of different people at Harper's that were all really supportive. Like Sasha Charnin Morrison was there and her stepmom was at New York Magazine as the fashion director. And she was like, well, you know, why don't you do an internship there too? Then you'll have two magazines on your resume. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people always, I think because I did the work, right? I was the first person literally in the magazine to turn on the lights. I turned them off at night. I was the one that was like, I'm going to clean up the closet now. I'm going to pick out the dust bunnies from the shoes. I did everything before anyone asked me to and I guess made a reputation for myself among the staff. And and then they sort of saw that and supported me. Um, Of course, along the way, there have been, you know, people I've worked with who have been less than stellar. Mm -hmm. But you learn how to navigate them by knowing that you stay true to yourself and you're not going to sort of lower your own standards to be like other people and just kind of have to rise above it. And also, I'm someone who has never been afraid of confrontation. Like, I'm very direct. And if someone does something or is inappropriate in some way, like, I will call them out. How do you do that in in a politically correct way that won't get you fired? Well, I think it's really simple. And I think it's almost um, – unnerving because the way that I usually confront people is in the most kind, soft way where my words are like really, really firm. I'm scared. (laughs) People do get scared because it's, because you, you want someone to scream, like you're used to people screaming, Mm -hmm. right? But I don't. So I'm just like really calm and I let the words sink in. Like you need to add moments of silence to when you deliver stuff like that. You kind of have to like pause and let, really it, good let it drop and see what they say. Um, but I'm about to scare a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> you go so far. Yeah. Okay. So you had a lot of these editorial jobs and now we are both kind of in the PR space or have been. It's kind of unheard of to go from editorial to then PR. And I know you went in-house. Was it in-house directly? Yes. Um, What was the call for that? Like, why did you decide to switch gears? And were people telling you from the PR side, like, don't do it? Because I come from the PR side and it's always been like a dream to go to the editorial side. And I don't know if that is the same for editorial. I don't think it is. That's funny. I think the grass is always greener no matter what. The truth is I was at Mary Claire for two years. My boss, Yamale, let me do a ton of stuff that was way beyond assistant level. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had grown. So two years really felt like seven years as far as managing up. And I had asked, um, Glenda Bailey was the editor in chief at the time. I had gone in for um, a raise. So just to put it in perspective, I was making $23,000 a year. I was living at home, obviously, because I mean, how could you afford anything with that salary? (laughs) And I had gone in and I had asked for, and actually when I think about it now, I was like so naive. I asked for $26,000, which by the way is four cents, right? right? So she said no. And um, I kind of walked away thinking, well, there's nothing left for me here. Like I was like, I'm done. How old are you? This place is dead to me. Um, 24. Okay. 23, 24. And um, I started interviewing at other magazines. And Did she give you a reason or just no? I think she said, like, you're not ready. And I was like, I think I am ready. She's like, you're not. I was like, all right, good job. Good for you for having, like, that internal confidence and strength to know your value even at that age, you know? Well, other people knew my value too, though. It was just Glenda who didn't see it at that mm. time. But there's a funny story to that. So I – um I interviewed at other magazines, but at that time, every accessories director had been in their roles for no exaggeration, 10 years each. No one was moving. Someone would literally have to die. I like don't, I don't know this era. Yes. This era I don't understand this era. You got that job and you did not move ever. Like now I was reading, um, I was reading in the daily yesterday and Mm -hmm. it's true. It's like every fashion week, all of a sudden it's like musical chairs editorially, like Alex White's now at Elle and all, Mm -hmm. all this change happens right before the shows that didn't happen back then. So I kind of said to myself, am I going to really be an assistant for another five years? Because that's what, those were the kinds of dues you had to pay back then. Mm -hmm. You were an assistant for five, six years. Then you became like maybe an associate editor or an assistant. I mean, it was, it was really a long haul. And I was like, this is, I'm way beyond this. Mm -hmm. So I spoke to PR people all day. I knew who I liked to work with, who I didn't like to work with. And I thought, 
I, I mean, I know who does their job well, because if they're getting me to call in their stuff, they're doing their job well, especially if they're not an advertiser, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a role at DKNY that opened up as the PR assistant coordinator in accessories. And I had heard about it, and I knew that I had zero PR experience, but I knew if another editor recommended me to the PR director at DKNY, then maybe she'd be like, oh, so I called uh, my friend Gretchen Gunlock, who was at Town & Country at the time, and I said, can you just put a little bug in their ear? Because I think I can do this role. And she did. And then they called me, and I acted totally surprised. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> thank you so much for thinking of me. I would love to come in. Um, and I got the job. And then I was really entrepreneurial in that job because – Back then, accessories was kind of like a stepchild, especially at a company that was known for ready-to-wear. Mm-hmm. So it was Donna Karen, DKNY. I was just working on DKNY accessories. And, like, no one really thought about them. No one really cared. They were giving out all these wardrobes to the magazines with, like, 100 pairs of shoes. And I knew at Mary Claire, all we did was steal them, <laughs> right? That's all we did. Like, no one shot them, and we took them home. So I was like, I'm getting rid of wardrobes. They end up looking like furniture in the closets. No one cares. And I and I sort of upped the game and then started sort of innovating within my own little space and then got promoted, promoted, promoted. And 17 years later. You became DKNY PR girl. Yes. And I want to get into that. But before <laughs> we get into the DKNY PR girl stories, I want to understand like when you got to DKNY, did you know that you were going to be there for a long time? And also, like, what was your job in the beginning to what it was at the end? So definitely not. Um, I think I've always been someone who likes to do things differently. Like, I love seeing white space and being like, well, what, wait, why can't we do that? Like, I'm very anti-status quo in everything I do. So I was like, wait, we don't have an accessories lookbook? Well, how do you guys expect editors to know what we have? So shot my own accessories lookbook. Um, you yourself, me myself, yes, with like a wow. like a camera, like it was probably like one of those like Canon. Stop. Yeah, Canon, and then I would print out the pictures. Yeah, it was a whole thing. Then I would make the cover. I would take like a dress that has a cool fabric, and I would put it on the copy machine, and photocopy the fabric, and that would be my cover. And then I might do like calligraphy because I do calligraphy um, as like. You, know, you have, like, so many different Fall traits. 1998 or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit all over the place as far as, like, skill set. Um, probably better to hone in on one, but what can you do? So I did that, and I was just pitching accessories, you know? And back then, and I have this, you know, sentiment in my book, which I call Last Name Syndrome, I remember calling everyone, because we called then, and saying, hi, it's Lisa from DKNY. Over and over again. And then I remember, and this will be sort of interesting to you, like the sort of culmination of me doing a good job and having like legit relationships with editors was when I just said, hey, it's me. Like no name necessary. So that was my goal with everyone. Like, hey, what's up? It's me. What are you working on? So that's what I did for years. And then I took on Don and Karen New York. Um, mm-hmm. collection accessories. And then I got ready to wear and then eventually became the head of the department. My last title was senior vice president global communications. And then that takes us to 2009 when we sat around and discussed this thing called social media that no one really knew about. Before we get into social media, I want to talk about what PR was before, before this conversation. Like what <clears throat> was it then and then later in the conversation, I want to get into what okay. it is now. PR. So print was God, literal God. Um, there was no online at all, like did not exist. So, and plus there was tons of advertisers. So there was more real estate to actually get coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that, you know, just like it is today, it's your relationships because sometimes you have a good collection, sometimes you don't. Working for a heritage brand, as amazing as, you know, working for someone like Donna Karen is, who's a prolific founder and beyond visionary as far as design itself, you know, sometimes she'd go off on a tangent and we'd be like, okay, so how are, who's, it's all black. Mm -hmm. Anna hates black. (laughs) Like they're never going to shoot it. And I will say there was many conversations where with Virginia Smith back in the day, she'd be like, Lisa, it's black again. I'm like, I know, but can we like try 
to find something to shoot. So, you know, it was me doing, you know, we were a force. I mean, Donna Karen was a force back then. And I remember one PR scenario that was this dress. I can't remember the season, but it was this dress, this Jersey dress that had um, hardware on it from Robert Lee Morris. And Harper's had shot Demi Moore in it um, for a cover, for a March cover. And we gave them exclusivity, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And then Vogue shot Demi Moore for a cover and in the same dress, just a different color. And I said, you, you can't, you can't. Harper's has exclusivity on the white version or whichever way, black or white. And it's the same, it's the same dress. She's like, well, Anna doesn't care. She's running it. And I'm like, what did you do? So first of all, I'm like, okay, A. It's a win-win on I have two March covers. (laughs) Right? Like that's okay, that's one. That's yeah. like PR gold. Right. You really can't I could go home forever. Like I don't need to work anymore. So <laughs> I was like, but then explaining it to Harper's, that was so I I literally called them and I'm like, I don't know what to say. Like, obviously you have exclusivity on paper. Um you can't like sue me. Like I I, they I, can't. I mean no, I mean, I don't think No. I don't think cover exclusivity yeah. is like a legal thing. I was like, Vogue, Vogue doesn't care. Vogue doesn't care about your cover. I, I, that's all I can say. I mean, I don't. How do they take it? Not well. <laughs> I'm assuming they're wrong. Not well. But I was like the PR hero. Like every PR person, I am not kidding, in the industry was like, how did you do that? And I was like, I literally didn't do anything. <laughs> I, I, di- I can't even take credit for it because I tried to like be fair to everyone and it wasn't working. So it was a lot of that. It was a lot of tons of celebrity dressing. hmm Tons of award show season stuff. Um, later on, I created Donna Karen Atelier to sort of cater to that specific market. Fashion shows. I mean, fashion shows were everything. I mean, show prep. I mean, seating charts way before Fashion GPS. Mm-hmm. Then with Fashion GPS and Events GPS. I mean, it was – I still look back at that time as like the best, best, best. And now it's just a little convoluted and it's a little confusing and – I feel like we're going to get into it, but I just, it's, it's hard to put your finger on where to focus on because it's really all over the place. It is. And I think it's, it's hard because there's been so many changes. Like Mm -hmm. print is not where it once was by a long shot. Like I don't even, I haven't (laughs) opened a magazine in years and I'm not I have a client that was on the cover of Vogue, uh, an international Vogue. I can't remember which one she had. The cover and like a seven-page spread, and she was like, "I didn't get one sale." No, from that. Yes. Okay. You know, and it's interesting. So we talk about flip-flopping. So yeah. Michael Carl, you know, spent his whole career mm-hmm. in magazines, and now he's PR at Hermes for the past couple of years. And he posted the other day he has his first March cover, and I and I looked at it and I was like, "Congrats!" And then I was like, "Oh, that's cute. He thinks it matters." It's so It doesn't it's so matter hard. Yeah. anymore. And I think because he is old school and I, I love him to death, but you know, it's it's that old school mentality of thinking like it does matter, but it doesn't. No, it, it matters if you're looking to get investors and you have that as like a look, we're validated type of thing. Yeah. But that's in terms of actual sales, like it does not matter. Not at all. So I mean, my PR strategy evolved obviously over the years and I went really hardcore celebrity trend because for me, if I can get three people in the same outfit and get a trend story online, that's sort of that sells. That's that sells. Mm-hmm. That actually sells. So I mean, being in the 10 best, you know, halter dresses for summer story, maybe. Maybe you get a few, but it, it doesn't it doesn't move the needle anymore. So social media happened and you're in this room talking about how you guys are going to navigate Mm-hmm. Twitter. So yes. Yeah. So we had Facebook and Twitter was like this anomaly. Like no one really knew what it was. We knew like mm-hmm. Twitter, we heard about it, but, um, you know, everyone was like, well, you know, we have to get on Twitter. We have to be first or one of the first. And I was like, well, if we make the handle at Donna Karen, everyone's going to think she's tweeting. And as her publicist, and certainly my mentor, Patty Cohen, who's ultimately the person responsible, I was like, I'm not dealing with that. That's going to be a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Because then who's writing that? Right. And so it was Gossip Girl season two. So I was like, well, why can't it just be anonymous like Gossip Girl? Like, why does anyone have to know? I was like, it can be like DKY PR Girl. 
And everyone was like, oh, that's interesting. And, you know, we took the idea to our general counsel because everything has to go through legal. And she was like, okay, that's that's great. Um, we only feel comfortable with you managing the Twitter account. And I was like, okay, no idea what it is, what kind of job that is. Um, so I took on the Twitter account. Mind you, it's a full-time other job on top of my real job, which was head of global comms. Right. So I did not get a raise, just to be clear to everyone. People were just like, okay, so she's going to just handle that. I mean, I guess you can kind of like parallel that to anyone that's taking on TikTok at a company right now. I don't think they're getting raises today. No. You know? Totally. But there's going to be a job for that specifically in two years, you know? Absolutely. So, um, you know, started just initiation by fire. Just felt my way through and and sort of it grew and grew and grew. And, you know, I was anonymous for two years mm-hmm. as that person. Really only because we didn't want to really highlight anyone. It wasn't about the person. It was it was about creating a filter to put the brand through in a different way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as people caught on and then Oscar PR girl and all the other PR girls and it sort of just snowballed, it became this massive secret. And then eventually in 2011, I was like, okay, this is annoying. Like, I can't do this anymore. Did people ask you all the time, like, who's doing it? Not just me, everyone. Like sales would go into market and Bergdorf or Saks would come in and they'd be like, you have to tell us. And they'd be like, we can't. Like, like no one said anything. No one. People kept a secret for two years. Think that through. That's no insane. No one keeps a secret for two years. Wow. That's wild. Wild. Like, I don't even know how that happened. No, no. I mean, that couldn't happen today. Yeah. So anyway, then in 2011, we did this, like, behind the scenes of Fashion Week video where I came out as the person. Of course, used the words came out and I was getting all these emails. Like, I didn't know you were a lesbian. And I was like, <laughs> I'm not. Poor choice of words. <laughs> Um, but I totally would be happy to be because I love all my girlfriends. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so it just, and then I was doing so much mentoring online that that's eventually what led to leave your mark. What were you feeling when you revealed that it was you? Like, did you feel when that day came when Aliza Licht came out being DKNY PR girl. Were you like, I am now going to have to be a part of this brand for X amount of years because this is now my identity? It was a lot. It was a lot. First of all, I didn't realize how much it was going to be. So um, I sort of famously tell this story. Like I was touring a camp for my son that day. It was a Saturday. And I tweeted the video because I had to, because I was going to speak at the Teen Vogue conference on Sunday as DKYPR girl, even though Teen Vogue didn't know it was me yet. They knew DKYPR girl was coming. So I had to push out this content and I did. And then I lost reception on my phone for the duration of like the entire camp tour, which was like three hours. (laughs) I, I honestly don't even know what I would do if I were you. So I'd be running on the street, like trying to find signals. I, I, I was having a meltdown and I got back in the car and I told my husband, I'm like, drive. Like I was like looking at the bars on my phone and all of a sudden we got reception and it was thousands upon that. Fa- I mean, it was the craziest. I have never seen, I didn't realize, like, of course I knew that the account had like, you know, 380,000 followers, mm-hmm. but like. Okay, there's a lot of big accounts. Yeah. It ended up generating 230 million media impressions. That is, wow. It was insane. From that one tweet. Yes. My God, how do we recreate that? The news, the news, the news, right? So did you feel when that happened, did you feel like, okay, now this is going to be my life for X amount of years? Well, I certainly had no intention of leaving Donna Karen. So okay. I didn't think like, oh my God, now I'm stuck here. I was like, this is amazing. I'm so glad I don't have to keep this secret anymore. But then I was kind of like, wow, I'm like really kind of snarky sometimes as DKY PR girl. And now they know it's me. So I don't want to like change my behavior now that it's me, but mm-hmm. I also need to be careful because it's me. And it, it, you feel very vulnerable because yeah. it's a really big audience. And, you know, across channels, it was, you know, over 1.5 million people. So it was, it was very, you feel naked a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it was great because, you know, I mean, it was really one of the first examples of humanizing a brand in a, in a, in a totally different way than the designer. And I think that, um, 
people really responded to the voice. And I think it's something that brands still try to get to that level today with every platform. But I think that that definitely paved the way for the way that brands communicate with their consumers Thanks. even today. Thank you. Yeah, it's really a really, really cool way to change the narrative because up until then it was very removed, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, we were the gatekeepers, right? Right. So, okay, you are now revealed as DKNY PR girl. When did the book deal come? So reveal was 2011. The New York Times did a full page style feature on the reveal Mm -hmm. in 2012, which was funny because I'm like, where were you guys in 2011? But thanks anyway. Um, (laughs) And then in 2013, an editor called me one day at my desk from Grand Central. And she's like, hi. She's like, my name's Amanda Englander. I follow DKM PR Girl. I read your blog. And I think there's a book in here somewhere. And I was like, oh, thank you so much. I definitely can't write a book. I mean, I had two little kids, four-year-old, one-year-old, full-time job, not writing a book, terrified, not doing it, said no three times. She didn't let that go. And I'm grateful to her forever for not letting it go because I didn't want to do it because I was petrified to do it. And then I sort of gave myself a little slap on the wrist, like, you you can't do you, you can't give up an opportunity like that because you're scared. That's ridiculous. Was the deal for you or was it for the brand? Great question. So that was my struggle also because I'm like, am I going to write a book that my company owns? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to do that. That's insane. And then I was like, but I am representing the company. It's proprietary. I I don't own DKYPR Girl. So I said to her, I'm like, if this is like a DKYPR Girl book, like I can't, like I can't. She's like, no, you can write whatever you want. She's like, we just love your voice. And I was like, okay, so then you get this carte blanche and then you're like, well, that's even worse because now it's like, well, what am I going to write about? Did you get scared that people, I mean, obviously now you're a voice, but at that point, were you ever scared that people wouldn't listen if it wasn't as DKNY PR girl? Yes. hundred percent scared. Oh my God. I had, I mean, so many fears that no one would buy it. Mm-hmm. People would hate it, that it would get ripped to shreds. I mean, there's a gazillion fears. So then I kind of realized... And I don't even know how, but like there were so many people DMing me on Twitter for career advice because I was putting out a lot of, do you remember? I don't know if you remember this, but it was like PR 101 or Life 101, all those tips. No, I swear. I, my friends and I, when we were starting our career, like we would send each other those tips all the time. Like it was the first career book that I ever read. Oh my God. I swear on my life. I still have it. so cool. Yeah. It was the first one. You were the first, I mean, I hate the term girl boss, but like you, you really were like, that's just... Oh. You started it. No, I think Kelly Catron started it in a way. Mm, I, I don't know. Book, didn't, I mean, didn't resonate book. with me as as much as yours did for sure. And I know, at least in my circle, like that was kind oh, of the first. That's so nice. So I realized I wanted to mentor. And maybe this would be my way of grabbing coffee with everyone who asked. Hence the coffee cup mm-hmm. on the cover. And as you can see from my coffee you cup are here. The, the definition red, of on brand. The red lips. <laughs> Every single morning. Yes, you can. And hello to plug for Dunkin' Donuts because it's great. Is that what you drink all the time? Yes. Oh my God, we're literally in the middle of recording. It's okay. (laughs) Um, So I realized I wanted to mentor. I came up with a concept. I pitched it to, to my publisher. I got a deal. And then, of course, I had to get approval. How did that go? Well, that was very, very arduous. And not just Donna Karen, like LVMH, the whole thing. But then I realized I can write this book and just like I used to tweet about Celeb X and Stylist X, I can say Brand X. Like it's it's still my story. Mm-hmm. So I said to Lynn, who's the general counsel of Donna Karen, who's actually a very close friend of mine, I was like, listen, I was like, I can write this and just say Brand X and not mention DKNY at all. I'm like, but I don't know why the brand wouldn't want the credit for being innovative. Mm-hmm. And we obviously worked through our deal and the book happened and came out in 2015. Then I rewrote it again in 2018 for paperback and I updated it. Obviously, I had left the company by then, so I had to make certain things past tense. And then now the podcast. So that's it. What do you think 
it is about the book that has it just has such a long life. Like, I feel like it's going to be a book that lives forever. I want my kids to read it. I mean, it's, it's now turned into a podcast and like, it just has such longevity. And I want to hear from your perspective, why you think that is. Cause a lot of people write career books, but like, for some reason, this one really sticks. I think, you know, one is I really try to have actionable steps in the book, right? So it's it's my story coming up through fashion, well, really before fashion with the whole pre-med thing, everything we spoke about earlier. And, you know, there's a lot of like heart and soul that goes into it. And it's, it's, it's my truth, right? So I think I'm a very real person. I'm a very sincere person. And I genuinely want to help people. And I've learned so much and I've been supported so much throughout my career that it's really, I mean, it's my way of paying it forward. And I think you can feel that when you read it. And I think people find it inspiring because it's a book that you read. Well, first of all, it's a book that a lot of people read over and over again. I read it more than once. Yeah. When they're going through less interview process or negotiation or building their personal brand, um, there's three sections. So it's land your dream job, kill it in your career, rock social media. I think people can relate to it because also it's not, and and I am proud of this, like it's not talking down to anyone. It's, it's, it's like, I'm your friend and I'm here to tell you like, this is how I did it. This is where I messed up and I shouldn't have done it that way. And this is where I succeeded and you should emulate that. Um, that's the only thing I can think of. I really didn't think it would still be no, I think a that's, thing that's now. A, I think those are really good points. And I think that like the way that you continue to have it live on, like now it's living on a podcast. I want to hear from your perspective when you decided to make that leap into the podcast space, how it differs from the advice that you gave in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I, I, let's do that first. And then I want to get into PR in general. Okay. So um it was not – okay, so I'm not a big planner. Like I am not someone who has – this is the not Tracy Flick part of okay, it. Like, okay. I don't have like a five-year vision board. Like I'm like, okay, what am I doing next week? That's okay. as far as I pretty much go. So I was at um, Alice and Olivia. I was there sort of – I left Donna Karen in 2015. I consulted for 10 months. Felt really alone. Didn't really like the whole consulting thing. And I was like, you know what? I I meant to be in-house. I need to go back into a brand. So I went back into Alice and Olivia as, or I went into Alice and Olivia as head of global brand marketing and communications. I was there for two and a half years. In March 2019, I was like, I need to do something else. Like, I need something creative. Should I write another book? What should I do? And then I'm like, oh God, another book. That's going to take forever. I need Mm -hmm. something like now. Didn't have an answer. The Daily had asked me to moderate a panel on influencer marketing at the Coterie, which is so funny because right now is the Coterie. <laughs> and um, Grace Atwood was on the panel, and I hadn't seen her in a bunch of years. And she was like, "Oh my god, you need to do my pet my my podcast, Bad on Paper." And I was like, "Oh my god, I would love to." And it, legit in my head, I'm like, "I've never listened to a podcast. Like, I don't even know what really? she's. No, I hadn't. I hadn't. I was like, I'll do it. Sure, fine." And then she's like, wait, why don't you have one? And I was like, I, I don't know. Should I have a podcast? <laughs> so I went home that night and I Googled how to do a podcast. And I was like, wow, if I can take the values and the premise of leave your mark and make it into a podcast that's more immediate, because I'm thinking podcast versus book. Books seem like really long and boring mm-hmm. and daunting. And I was like, podcast, fast, you know, and my voice, which kind of always wanted to be a talk show host. So that was like my way voice. of- Thank you. Well, I don't know about the voice, but the- No, you, you have know. a great voice and voice. Oh God, I don't know about <laughs> that. I hate listening to my voice. I think everyone does. So I set out, and I think it's interesting because I thought to myself, well, I have this book. It's in multiple languages. Surely there's going to be a production company that wants to work with me and produce this podcast for me. So I don't have to put any money into it. And then we'll see what happens. That would be a no. Really? Yes. I spoke to everyone. I spoke to Spotify. I spoke to Cadence. I spoke to Dear Media. I spoke to Gallery. I mean, I spoke to Gary Vee. I spoke to everyone. And they were like, oh, no, you know, we're just looking for talent. Like, they wanted talent with, like, you know, 50 million YouTube subscribers, whatever. And I get it, obviously, you know, PR. But I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it myself. And I'll do it for a season. I'll do 15 episodes. And we'll see what happens. And so now Leave Your Mark, the podcast is in season two. And the difference is 
the age range is much larger. Mm -hmm. So the guests that come on are all different ages. There are some people who are famous, some people you haven't heard of, but I've cast it in a way where I know why they're there because they have magic to share. So it's interesting because the book is definitely more younger professional, mm-hmm. maybe even college age. Yeah. The podcast is is much, much wider from college through. I mean, it could be through I think your, it's so smart through your because 50s or 60s even. I think that the podcast listener, aka my generation, or a big part of it, is the person who read your book when they were in college. So it's like you transi- transitioned perfectly. Oh, Because now you. like we're listening to podcasts and, oh, here's the book that really inspired me when I was younger. And now they're, they're having people on the podcast that resonate with me. Well, thank you. That was obviously not a plan. But I mean, that, <laughs> that's exactly how I'm hooked on it. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. No, I'm really proud of it. I mean, I, I think, you know, I have a lot, you know, and, and certainly you can appreciate this as PR. Like you get to a point where it's now been – God, I've been in the industry since 96. Mm-hmm. I have an incredible network of people. And I'm like, well, why am I not tapping into these people to like share their stories? So it's really a great use of your Rolodex, so to speak, because I mean- And it's mutually beneficial. It's mutually beneficial. It's also a great way to network mm-hmm. because it gives you a reason to reach out to people that you probably wouldn't have a reason to. Otherwise, right now, like I'm not, you know, I don't represent a brand right now. Right. I'm consulting. So people are busy. No one has time for coffee, but you know what? People like to do podcasts. People do like to do podcasts. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it is, it's it's good for the two people across yeah, the table. totally. For sure. Um, so I want to quickly get into PR, um, pre and post social. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts today for any brand that like they need to be paying attention to? I think it's really has to be a very eclectic strategy. So first of all, I will say this, and I'm sure you get this too. Are you getting pitched by publicists for people to be on your podcast? Yes. Okay. So that is the new real estate. Mm-hmm. And I see that in a really big way. It's sort of the shift like the way that we've sort of gravitated away from print and then we moved to online, now podcast is like the next place to put your client. And I also think the podcast listeners in general are much more likely to purchase because there is a serious intent. Like if you are downloading a show and you are keeping that on your phone and you are listening to that, you want to learn and you want to listen. As opposed to like the radio where you're just flipping through and, you know, maybe you stop somewhere, but this is like, you have real intent to listen to something. And I also think that the good podcasts have, they they think about who their advertisers are more. So whoever, <laughs> at least the podcasts that I listen to, they're all very on brand to whatever the message is yes. of the podcast. Yes. And I think that the, the listener is already so engaged and it's also like someone that has a little bit of a higher income, they buy. Absolutely. And that's true. They do have a higher income. And I would say- the host read ad spots, mm-hmm. when you really relate to the product you're talking about, they really work. And a lot of the times the host is an influencer or a celebrity or whatever, and you're kind of circumventing that celebrity deal and having them read something that right now ad space on podcasts are not what an ad on Instagram or an ad on digital cost. You know, right now, right now it's a lot less. Um, so I think it's just like, at at least right now we're in a really good place because people want it and, and yes. So on that note, I've made zero, I've made zero dollars because I, I mean, I've had different brands approach me and I'm like, no, it doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't, I don't want to have a sponsored episode. Mm -hmm. No, like the editor, the editorial point of view and integrity is really important to me. And I also, so I'm just going to wait until something makes sense. Great strategy. Yes. I mean, it's an expensive strategy, Yeah. but I think right now it's, it's investing in my own brand, which I've never really done before. So I relate very much so, but I do think that like you're having meetings with these people anyway, like put a mic, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like you're going to be having coffee with them either way. Like why not let other people into what you guys are talking about? I agree. I agree. It's It's, a good use of time. (laughs) It is. It's just, you listen, there's this, you know, you have a studio cost today. I mean, editing costs. I mean, it's, it adds up. Mm -hmm. I'm always amazed at people that have like hundreds of episodes. I'm like, wow, you must be making bank because that is like, it's a lot. Yeah. Like every time I do one, I'm like, okay, well, 
they're, they're well, I mean, we're similar in that we well, I have a PR agency and you consult. So like a lot of that money is funneled into like making this yes, happen. Yes. But like it's paid off tenfold. Like yeah. it just it just has. Yes. And it, I think it's, you know, it gives it gives credibility yeah. in a different way. Um, but PR in general, I would say it it doesn't move the needle the way it used to. So I would say, you know. It has to be, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in partnerships. I'm a big believer in creating press because there's cool things that the brand is doing in a different way. Like, I don't think PR having like a dress shot in a magazine or online in a story, like a roundup story, is going to move the needle the way it once did. Totally agree. So this podcast is for someone who may be at a full-time job that is really lost. They don't know what to even ask themselves to figure out what their passion is. It seems like you've had kind of an idea of what your passion has been your whole life. But like if your daughter came to you and was like, mom, like I really want to be as passionate as you are in what you do for work and I don't know where to start. Well, what, what would you say? So it's kind of the opposite. Like I said to Sabrina yesterday, actually, I was like, we need to figure out what you're interested in. Like you have to try different things and see what you're interested in. And I think the best thing people can do is really take advantage of the side hustle. Like if you're in a job that you're like, this job is so not for me, but it pays the bills. Mm -hmm. You have to think about, and I think it was, it was Jessica Andrews who said this on my podcast. Think about what you would do for free. Like what excites you that you'd be like, you know what? I want to do that. I would do it for free. That is something that if you are that passionate about it, you're going to do well in it and figure out how to do that. And I think while you have a day job, just to figure out how you can sort of test the waters on the side. It's really good advice. What is your literal active ingredient? Or actually, let me do the first question. What is your active ingredient in what you do today? Like in the my like in your role? purpose or just in it doesn't have to be with work. It can be being a mom. It can be anything. But like when you wake up in the morning and you go, like what is it that you're excited to bring to the world? I, I genuinely want to help people, and I think that nothing makes me happier than when you know podcast listeners or even readers of the book write in and they're like, "I got a raise because of your book. I got a new job because of your book. I negotiated my salary because of listening to, you know, Bevy Smith's episode." Or so that to me is really worth it. And actually, I said this to my husband yesterday because he, you know, back in the day, he would make fun of me on Twitter and say like, "Oh, you're talking to your fake friends again?" And I'm like, "They're not fake. Like I know a lot of them. They're so mean." But he's just really funny. So the podcast is like, you know, right now he lovingly calls it the cost center. He's like, how's the cost center going? <laughs> like the cost center. I'm like, I'm really helping people, David. And he's like, he's like, no, I think you are. And I'm like, no, I fucking am. Okay. I am. So, um, you know, I, I really, in every aspect of my life, like I want to do it for my children. I want to, you know, I'm super involved at school. I was the PA president for like eight years. I just stepped down because I was like, okay, my kid's in yeah. high school now. I don't need to be the PA, PA president. <laughs> um, I I genuinely want to help people. I'm an Uber connector like you are. And I'm constantly, like if I think of an idea, this happens all day long. I'll think of an idea for someone else and I'll just shoot them an email and be like, oh my God, you know what you should do or you know who you should connect with? And those kinds of things, whether it's like an email, Instagram DM, tweet DM, I mean, all over the place, I'm like actively thinking about what other people it's should like do. It's in your blood. It's in my blood. It's my default setting. And I think it comes back in spades. What I am really not good at is asking other people for help. Really? Horrible. I Horrible. feel like that is – that's – a piece of advice that I hear on this podcast all the time. No, it's it's really something that I'm super uncomfortable about. I feel like I'm always like, am I like bothering someone? Um, so I'm super open to like helping anyone. And then if like I'm like, oh, I, I need a connection to so and so, I'm like, well, should I ask someone? I'm like, you need to no, get over that. Let me figure it out. <laughs> I know. I, I I definitely need to get over it. I definitely do. For sure. I'm so surprised. I feel like. Literally, that's one of the most said things on this podcast is asking for help. I know. But, you know, listen, everyone has no, their totally. things that they're not comfortable with. That is yeah. one of my things. And, you know, my friend Carrie Kirpin, who did an episode with me, she said, because we we actually discussed this, and she said, 
asking for things is really self-care. She's like, and she's like, she's like, you focus on, you know, self-care for your skin, self-care for your body. Like you, you need to ask for help. And then she rightly said, but you have to trust who you're asking for help because there is a vulnerability to it where you're telling someone you don't know how to do something mm-hmm. or you need help with something. So you, you need to selectively think about who you're asking for help. Even better advice. Um, I always close out the podcast asking, what is your literal active ingredient? Like, is it your Dunkin' coffee, your red <laughs> lipstick? Like, what's something that you need every single day to get going? Okay. So both of those things. <laughs> so actually, I will say it's it's coffee. Um, it's fashion. Every day. Every day. I mean, I'm going to take a picture of you, but you look amazing. Thank you. This is Zara, by the way. Oh, my God. Um, what? Yeah. Recently? Uh, a few months ago. I'm going to go check, Um, like after this podcast. I enjoy – it brings me joy to get dressed every day, to do my makeup every day, to really like kind of face the world like with, you know, I guess gusto. And and yes, the red lips for sure. What else do I need? I need Uber. (laughs) (laughs) Uber, you want to sponsor this? No, no, seriously. (laughs) Uber, um, Instacart, um, all of sort of the efficiencies of life. But mostly – I think my active ingredient is connecting with people. Like I love connecting with people all day long. And I think that's, you know, sort of the joys of PR. Like if we weren't connectors, we couldn't do that job, right? And I think, you know, when you host a podcast, you you really want to connect with people. And I guess that's my active ingredient is just connection. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Where can everyone find you? What is your podcast? Okay. Well, first of all, thank you. Yeah. Um, Leave Your Mark is the podcast. Leave Your Mark is the book. I'm on Twitter at Aliza Licht. Instagram is Aliza Licht XO because someone took my name. <laughs> I always have to say that because I don't really want that XO, but it's there. So, um, and where else? LinkedIn. I mean, I'm everywhere. My site, alizalicht.com. You can email me questions through there. I answer every single one. Wow. I give career advice through Ask Aliza. Thank you so much. Thank this you so, so much. Fun. I'm happy we were able to do it with I the know. stress. <laughs> I know, but look, it all worked out. Thank you so much, Sophie. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening. It would mean the world to us if you could rate and review us. And for more inspiration and quotes from the episode, check us out on Instagram at Active Ingredient. See you next week.